This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Politics Roundtable on 103.9, 1450 WKXL and NHTalkRadio.com. I'm Dan Hale, and we welcome back our panel time U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson, and columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston. Well, after the violent assault on the Capitol with attackers armed with weapons, explosive restraints, and apparently looking for Vice President Pence to capture or assault him, let's talk about what should come next. First, Reviewing the speech that Trump gave last Wednesday just before the mob marched on the Capitol and his months-long campaign of allegations about the vote, is he responsible for what happened or not? His supporters say he told the crowd to be peaceful and has every right to contest the election results. So uh, bring lawsuits and even, you know, his his congressional supporters uh, vote on whether to accept the results. Paul, we'll, we'll start with you. Did President Trump incite the insurrection? Yes, he did. That's the short answer. Yes, he did. And the the events uh, on Wednesday were the culmination, really, of uh, a campaign of his that stretched back, uh, frankly, beyond even the 2016 election. Uh, if you look at the things he said, his the way he relentlessly pushed the birther conspiracy um, attempt to delegitimize uh, the presidency of Barack Obama. Uh, he began his 2016 campaign with racist slurs. Throughout the campaign and his presidency, he has um, denigrated the media and basically created um, uh, an alternative universe uh, and masterfully, masterfully manipulated the electorate and the media to his ends of creating uh, an alternate reality, uh, fact-free, truth-free, trust-free, where he would be followed like the uh, dictator he would like to be. And Wednesday's was a culmination of his telling the Proud Boys to stand by, of his insightful remarks at Charlottesville, of his um, uh, telling people to come to the Capitol, it's going to be wild. So you can look at both the remarks and his history and trace a direct line to what happened to the conduct of the President of the United States. It's sad, it's desperate, Uh, and it has created a crisis for the nation. There are many people who who knew it would come to this, um, feared that it would, and he's responsible. Um, He is absolutely responsible. He is primarily responsible. He is the cause uh, of this this crisis. Alicia, was he the cause? 
Well, let me back up a second because, you know, I've heard it repeated so many times. I watched it while it was happening, but Ken, just having you lay out point by point what occurred last Wednesday on January 6th, uh, I got emotional all over again. It was a horrible, horrible time in our country and horrible day in our history. And I can't get used to hearing that there was an insurgency in our US Capitol where people tried to kidnap and want to kill our Vice President of the United States. That happened. Yes, yes, Donald Trump is partially responsible. He incited them. I was watching all the events. I, you know, like a lot of us work from home, so I had the TV on in the background. And first I was kind of laughing at Don Jr. because I simply don't know why every time he takes a microphone, he's screaming at me. And I kind of thought it was funny. I was waiting for the Dean scream type thing. And then it turned dark. Like the vibe turned dark and you could see it. If you were watching, it was palpable. The president started using profanity. The crowd started repeating the chants of profanity and it was a little chilling. Now, I didn't predict what was gonna happen next, who could have, but if you were watching, most people would see that, that it turned dark. And, and yes, President Trump incited this without a doubt. And I understand those in my party who support him completely, don't want to see it, but it was there. And, and, and it was a sad, sad reality. And just today, the president came out and said his words were perfect. Everyone says he didn't do anything wrong. And, but reports inside say he recognizes it a little bit. Um, I believe it was Kevin McCarthy said he recognizes that he actually is partially responsible. And we have to understand our words matter, particularly if people follow your words. Matt? Well, I can't speak to the legal issue of culpability. There certainly is a lot of jurisprudence about inciting riots, yelling fire in a crowded theater as exceptions to the First Amendment. So I don't find particularly credible the defense that there is a First Amendment right to contest elections, to express a political opinion, to express uh, difficulty with the outcome of the election. That's simply not covered. Although, again, I, I, I want to limit myself in giving too much legal analysis. If you want to hear good legal analysis on this, Paul and I had an outstanding expert, a legal expert on the show yesterday, and that's available on podcast. I also don't want to speak to the high crimes and misdemeanors standard in the U.S. Constitution that speaks to impeachability. That is a matter for the U.S. Congress. I also, I want to be very careful here to distinguish between roots and results. There is an argument going around, including from Trump supporters, but also some conservatives who are not Trump supporters, who think that it is reasonable to point out that the roots of the dysfunction that we saw play out violently in the Capitol go deeper than Trump. That is true. That is fair. I acknowledge that. And in that sense, Democrats are not blameless in some of the roots of our dysfunction and some of the anger in our politics. That has nothing to do whatsoever with what occurred last Wednesday. Finally, I would just say, that there is deep historical precedent at work here. You have to go back almost a thousand years, but famously in 1170, Henry II of England said, 
will no one rid me of this turbulent priest, referring to Thomas Beckett, with whom he had a dispute. And what happened? Four knights interpreted his words as a call to action, as a call to violence, and went about murdering the priest. It is not that hard to read the transcript or watch the video of what Trump said immediately before the insurrection and to hear, will no one rid me of this turbulent vice president and Republicans who refuse to go on my side of, of the ledger and somehow overturn the results of the election. There is, I say, to I, me- I, I, I was merely asking a question. Right. That's all I was doing. I, I was just asking a question. How could anybody interpret that as a, attempting to incite an insurrection? It's that been Paul a long, Ma- is that Paul McCartney it's asking? Been a, <laughs> it's been a thousand years and still I can't clear this up. Well, I uh, <laughs> uh, so f- from from either uh, one of the Beatles or the ghost of Christmas past, I, there there is there is deep precedent here for a political leader saying something along these lines and it being a very clearly understood instruction to go be violent. And that's what happened. So, Alyssa, should uh, Mike Pence and the Trump cabinet uh, invoke the 25th Amendment and remove Trump from office? Is that, is that the right thing to do? No, and, and here's why. If, if there were more than eight days left in his term, perhaps I would have a different opinion. But A, I don't think you're going to get the cabinet votes that you need to actually be effective. And all it will do is create more rioting in the streets. I mean, look, we're coming up in a couple days from now that there is allegedly and reportedly protest, which could turn poorly in 50 states in this country and the United States Capitol. It's eight days to go. Um, Now, there's crazy rumors about him, you know, signing the Insurrection Act, and people also don't know what the Insurrection Act says, so there's conspiracies around that. If further comes and more dangerous comes, you know, maybe I'd revisit my opinion, but right now there's eight days left. Let's ride it out. We shouldn't impeach him either because nothing's going to happen in the Senate. There is not two-thirds of the vote to convict him in the Senate. It is eight days. We need to ride it out. We need to try, have calm, and we need to ensure that the people in our cities and communities around this country are safe for the next eight days. Paul, 25th Amendment. Uh, You know, um, uh, Neville Chamberlain was famous for appeasing Adolf Hitler. And um, I would uh, hesitate to see leadership in the United States appease um, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Yes, there's only eight days left, but we've seen what can happen in the short span of 24 hours. We have deranged, unhinged uh, president of the United States. His aides have uh, circled to try to prevent him from causing any further damage. He still has his finger on the nuclear button. Nancy Pelosi had a chat with the Joint Chiefs of Staff trying to get some assurance that they were not going to let him slide further off the rails. Now, I know that he's obsessed at the moment with the fact that the PGA canceled the 2022 golf tournament at Trump in New Jersey, but who knows how that wrath could boil over in a guy who's uh, basically out of his mind. Uh, Folks said that before all these events happened. So, From a practical standpoint, Vice President Pence 
will not invoke the 25th Amendment. Uh, the cabinet of, of Trump um, toadies and hacks will not uh, use the 25th Amendment to remove him. And in the past, the 25th Amendment has been used for uh, minor inconveniences uh, of the president. This would be a very challenging precedent to uh, debate the, the how just how dangerous and unhinged this leader is. So from a practical standpoint, the 25th Amendment uh, is, is really a challenge for all of us. In terms of impeachment, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats have issued a threat. If you don't invoke the 25th Amendment, we're going to impeach him. An article of impeachment has been, uh, has been presented. It will be voted on, uh, and it will be voted on tomorrow. And then um, he will stand, uh, assuming the vote is to impeach, as the only president in U.S. history to be impeached twice. Uh, remember, impeachment is not conviction. So from a practical standpoint, uh, they would either have to rush it through the Senate, and the Senate at this point probably wouldn't vote, or they hold it for 90 days uh, while Biden um, moves his agenda. Although uh, Joe Biden has not sounded uh, great calls of caution about how to move. The importance of impeachment is the beginning of holding this president accountable. This president and everybody who participated in this insurrection must be held accountable. Impeachment is the right first step. Matt, where do you come down on, uh, first of all, the uh, 25th Amendment? In terms of the 25th Amendment, I agree with both Alicia and Paul that it's not practical at this point, although hearkening back again to the show that Paul and I did yesterday with Lawrence Douglas, the legal scholar at Amherst College, he presented a novel argument that I had not heard before, that from a certain standpoint, invoking the 25th Amendment now almost implies that Trump's previous behavior was not 25th Amendment worthy and puts sort of a imprimatur of legitimacy on it that is maybe undesirable. He also seemed to imply that it creates a standard for behavior that maybe you don't want to establish for future presidents. You really, as Paul was alluding to, getting to issues of mental capacity perhaps better to leave the 25th Amendment to being truly physically incapacitated or having a distinct mental break with reality. I'm not sure that Donald Trump has had one compared to his previous behavior and that this is really just a difference in degree, not a difference in kind. So I, I end up on no for similar reasons. So Alicia, with a week to go, why impeachment? Well, I think I've discussed this before. Look, people in Congress love to make points, right? But that's not what they're there for. They're not there to make a point. In impeachment, sure, it puts the history books that he's got two impeachments on him, but it doesn't have any practical effect. It's just political grandstanding because they know there is no vote in the Senate that will convict him. Um, and I think it's a dangerous political grandstanding that doesn't take the responsibility away from Donald Trump. But you have to look at what's going to happen from your actions. And what's going to happen from their actions is rioting in the streets, maybe more death and destruction. And that should not be the outcome of making a political point, point in Congress. Do you think there's that fear, though, that uh, he may 
run again in 2024? I, I mean, uh, if you know, if you're impeached, and you said that this, the votes would not be there in the Senate. I think that's pretty obvious. But do you think that's the reason? No, he's so impeached. If he's impeached, he can run again in 2024. The only way he can't run again in 2024 is if they impeach him, the Senate convicts him on a two-thirds or more vote, and then the Senate's punishment, which does only have to be a simple majority, is he can never run for federal office again. That part two and three ain't going to happen. Right. So there is no practical effect of them impeaching him other than the dangers it creates to our communities. So let me just weigh in for a quick second. First of all, um, uh, I think that uh, the argument Alicia has made is a good argument, but I'll tell you why it fails. First of all, a lot of what Congress does um, isn't practical. It's to make a point. Um, and a lot of what uh, needs to be made here is a point um, and a significant point that this conduct inciting a president inciting insurrection is a high crime and misdemeanor. Uh, number two, we know uh, from all the reports and all the intelligence that's being gathered and reported that um, further incidents of armed insurrection and mayhem are already being plotted. Uh, the warnings are out that people are planning uh, violence in all 50 capitals. They're planning violence around the inauguration there. Those plans are ongoing. So it's not like an impeachment is going to incite further violence. They're already on the move. This president has unleashed the beast. He has, he has set the beast loose in the streets. And uh, we're not going to put that genie back in the bottle by ignoring um, what is necessary to hold him accountable. So I think I, I, I appreciate the argument and I get that time is short, but I think that argument fails. And further, I'd say that um, I'd be making an argument to the senator, the Republican senators as follows. Okay, everybody knows this is bad. We've all said it privately. And look, um, we're looking at 2024. We need to convict him in the Senate because just think, if we convict him in the Senate, then you won't have to compete with Donald Trump for the 2024 nomination. And you can run for president. Otherwise, he's already locked it up. So you should vote to convict. Now, <clears throat> if I'm Ted Cruz and Hawley and I'm still there, that's a pretty attractive argument to all of a sudden become the good American and and vote and vote to vote to convict him. Robeson is shaking his head. He thinks I'm crazy. But listen, nothing, nothing is past the self-interest of a United States senator. Nothing. <laughs> Matt, is Paul crazy? Well, well, yeah, but that has nothing to do with the discussion <laughs> no. here. Um, we, <laughs> you know, I was actually. If Paul's crazy, I, I'm. I'm. A little bit crazy as well. I was actually with Paul on this up until about 24 hours ago. I don't think that this is easy. I, I don't think that there is an easy answer to this. It's really only over the last 24 hours that, as I've been ruminating about this, and I have, I've been thinking about this virtually nonstop. I've come around to Alicia's point of view. I think that in life, one has to separate between that which makes one feel better and that which accomplishes something. And as much as I agree with Paul that making a point is important in this regard, we have to think forward to where we want to be in a year, in two years. 
I've come around to the argument, and I think it was first advanced by John Harris in Politico, that what we really need to do here is hold off on impeachment. Look, it's not like we're going to have a Senate trial before February 20th anyway. What we'd be talking about is an impeachment trial that would happen after Trump left office with the sole purpose of preventing him from running again in 2024. There's no reason you have to do that right now, especially given everything that has to get done for the health and well-being of our country. I would much prefer to form a post 9-11 style commission, make the co-chairs unimpeachably, no pun intended, bipartisan uh, with high credibility, make it George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Make it two figures of historic importance from both political parties and really get to the bottom of everything that happened last week, what the roots of it were, what the causes, who was involved, what what role played out for what people. And then in six months, if you want to go back on the basis of that kind of a, a deep inquiry and go back and, and do a retroactive impeachment, have at it. But I think that would be probably the healthiest course forward. It would land us in the best place a year from now. An interesting fact, because there's been a lot of talk of, does it have to be done before January 20th? There's actually precedent, not in a president, <clears throat> but in 1867-ish, um, the Secretary of War, William Belknap, um, knew he was going to be impeached. So he ran to the White House and he submitted his letter of recommendation. The House decided to impeach him anyway. The Senate did conduct a trial. Um, The majority voted to convict. It wasn't two thirds. So he wasn't ultimately convicted. But that all happened after he had resigned. So there is precedent for an impeachment post office. All right. And uh, Alicia, we thank you for that historical fact. And we need to take a break right now. Time for a break. We'll have more Politics Roundtable coming right up on 1039 1450 WKXL and nhtalkradio.com. Welcome back to Politics Roundtable. Ken Kale here with two-term U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, former senior staffer and campaign manager Paul Robeson, and columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston. Well, you've so- upgraded me. You upgraded me to Paul there, Ken. What's that? You, you made me Paul Robeson, the, the, the noted singer and spiritualist. Yeah. yeah you, that's a promotion in my book. I'm, I'm, I'm frankly touched. <laughs> well, Paul, uh, Matt Robeson. Did I, did I say Paul Robeson? Yeah, but he's yeah. awesome. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what, how that came into my mind, but I, I apologize. Or maybe you take it as a compliment. I don't know. But uh, what is going to happen to the Republican Party now? Big divisions uh, emerging between elected leaders, and now it seems to extend uh, to the grassroots as well. A story came out uh, this week. Frank Luntz, a veteran GOP pollster, conducted a focus group on on the uh, night after the Capitol uh, attack with 12 Trump voters from 11 different states. And in his words, he was flabbergasted by the sharp, even angry tone of the discussion. And he also noted that when he asked the group of 12 to name their preferred candidate in 2024, only two said Trump, none said Vice President Pence. So what is the path forward now for the Republican Party? And uh, why don't we start with, uh, with Paul Hodes, a Democrat? It would be great for the country 
if Republicans of conscience uh, in revulsion against what the past four years have done and what the incitement to insurrection mean, would uh, reconsider uh, whether or not the extreme right-wing radical tilt of the Republican party is good for the party or good for the country. Um, you know, New Hampshire always had a tradition here at home of uh, fiscally conservative and socially moderate Republicans. It was the old fashioned Republican party who were um, in essence, uh, you could argue they were true conservatives. It's hard to argue that the, that the far right neo-Nazi element that called themselves Republicans are really representative of what most Republicans in this country believe. Although I saw a poll that said 45% of Republicans in the wake of the insurrection and the attempted coup approved of what happened. Um, so I think at, at the very least, uh, and Alicia is probably even better positioned as a Republican to talk about this, there is a real split that has happened in the Republican party. In, a, in, in essence, it's broke in two um, between those who are uh, so far out on, on the right that they approve of what happened and those Republicans who understand that we live in a nation that is generally centrist and moderate and that there is a real role an important role in this democracy and in the American political scene for differences in policy, differences in approach, and differences in 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 the way in, in the way you accomplish what the country needs to accomplish. Now, so I'm hopeful, frankly. I'm 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 optimistic um, that out of all this, when when the insurrection is put down, when the violence is uh, con is controlled uh, if it can be and justice is meted out that the Republican Party will have a reckoning and come back to some reality. And I say this despite the number of people in the House who voted to against certification even after this. Um, but I'm optimistic that at some point uh, the, well, let's call it the Romney Kasich wing of the Republican Party will reassert itself. Alicia, what about the Republican Party? Where does it go from here? And, uh, you know, looking over the next uh, a couple of years, what's going to happen uh, midterm? Well, I think we need to have a gut check. But, you know, th there's something broader going on in our society. And that is that for some reason over the past many years, and it's not partisan, it's just a reality, we've begun to idolize individuals over ideas. Um, and in sports, right? Lifelong New England Patriots fans are Tampa Bay fans now because they went with Tom Brady. That didn't used to happen. I used to, you know, when Johnny Damon left the Sox to go to the Yankees, my mother was a huge fan. I got a little bobblehead of Johnny Damon and she lit it on fire in the backyard in effigy. <laughs> I love her. Because <laughs> we're Red Sox fans, not Johnny Damon fans. But for some reason, we've started to idealize a person instead of an idea. That happened with Donald Trump. And it no longer was about the concepts of conservatism. It was about Donald Trump. That's not even an insult to Donald Trump. That's just a, a reality. And so now the Republican Party is, do you support Donald Trump? I've been called a rhino so many times in the past few years, if I disagree with him. And the fact is, I'm far more conservative than Donald Trump ever was. 
But now I'm a rhino because if I disagree with him, he's the party, not the conservative ideals of the Republican Party. And I think we have to take a look at that and see what it is. Do we support one person because that one person is not going to be the leader of the Republican Party forever? Or are we going to go back to our ideas of individualism, smaller government, fiscal conservatism, which is why I have always been a Republican. And we need to have an internal talk. And that's going to be the basis of it is who are we? Are we Donald Trump's party or are we Republicans in the intent that that was meant to be? And I don't know how that conversation ekes out because we have a huge divide and people are angry with each other. And I don't want people to be angry with each other anymore. It dumbfounds me. It's sad. Matt, what about the Republicans? I agree that there is an intra-family discussion that probably needs to happen among Republicans and probably doesn't benefit that much from the input of people like me and Paul and Democrats. It's sort of... It's sort of like if you live next to your neighbor and you're all in a community, you, you swap milk and eggs with each other when you're low and they've got some, they've got some business to clean up in their household. You're, you're interdependent. I mean, we're all in this country together. And I firmly believe that there needs to be a robust center-right party in this country for the health of our politics. I don't think that it's healthy and we saw this over the course of 40 years of democratic control of the U.S. House, to have one party fester in majority, fester in power, and go over the, the end of the cliff uh, with their own <laughs> sense of power and entitlement. So there, there needs to be a healthy Republican Party. It just can't be prompted from Democrats. It is kind of a mess among Republicans right now. There was some really good reporting about how the online MAGA world has actually become sort of ticked off at Donald Trump for the very first time. There are people who are outspoken commentators online turning on Trump, which wouldn't have seemed possible even a, a couple of months ago. So it's going to be a little bit of a mess. But ultimately, I, you know, I think that, that all that... Democrats can really do as part of this is to offer a pathway of, of partnership in government to Republicans who want to work together and advance a fiscally conservative, strong on defense, um, moderate on, on traditional social um, values. If that's their outlook politically, great. And, and there needs to be a, a way that Democrats can work with Republicans on that basis but uh, no, it can't be imposed from the Democratic side. You know, I've just got to respond to, to the incendiary notion uh, that Alicia Preston raised. Um, first, let's recognize that Bill Belichick turned down the Medal of Freedom. Um, so, so that's a really important development in, in humankind. And secondly, watching Tom Brady and Gronk in brown uniforms you have to look past the brownness of those uniforms of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and get down to the idea of the beauty of a pass from Tom Brady to Gronk. So, so I'm not sure it's a cult of personality for Tom Brady as much as it is the celebration of the idea of gorgeous football because Cam Newton's shoulder just, just, I don't know, man, I think he may need surgery. He's throwing these floaters out there. He doesn't connect. 
Um, so, so, so it's tough. It's tough in Patriots land these days. It's really hard. I was a Red Sox fan through the eighties and nineties, and I will be a Patriots fan through the equivalent misery of the next decade. I know. I know we all are. We, 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 got, we turn on the television, we watch it, we shake our heads. It, we're lost in the wilderness, I guess. Sad. It's tragic. It is. They'll, it's tragic. They'll bounce back. We, we won't have Cam Newton to kick around much longer. That, that, Good. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but we will have Democrats to kick around. And, and Alicia, what about the Democrats? Now, Joe Biden apparently worried about the push for impeachment interfering with his ability to get his cabinet confirmed, uh, pass legislation, including things needed to fight COVID and uh, reset the whole tone and in Washington longer term. So how do Democrats navigate through all of this? Well, first of all, don't be extreme. Look, Joe Biden is one of those Democrats that a lot of Republicans find palatable, we'll call it. We've got to have a Democrat in charge. Joe Biden ain't the worst of them, right? And that's kind of how a lot of us look at him. But I've been very disappointed since last Wednesday at some of his public statements because he, pro and I tweeted this at him, he promised me when he won this election, he would be a unifier. He promised he would be positive. He promised he would try calm this nation. And he did it until last week. And then he's been tweeting division and angst and exactly what he promised he wouldn't do. So I need Joe Biden to go back to his promises pre-election and post and understand that because chaos hit us on Wednesday doesn't mean he gets to change his course of action. I have relatively high hopes as Democrats go for Joe Biden at the helm. I want him to be a calming force and he needs to be. If he does that, his party members in Congress should follow. The extreme liberal wing, the AOCs of the world, all they can do is damage his ability to lead this country. And I hope, I was hoping the Senate would be GOP to have a stopgap against extreme progressive policies. It's not. So Joe's gonna have to do it on his own. Paul, check in. Paul's checked out. I guess so. <laughs> All right, Matt, you check in. All right. So uh, since since I was upgraded to to Paul status, um, you know, Alicia, I, I got to say, I, I kind of agree with you here. I I think that this is a moment where Joe Biden needs to be the leader of of the party and he should be weighing in a little little bit more forcefully with the leadership in Congress. This is extremely emotional. This is very hard. This is emotional for me. I worked in the Capitol for 10 years. I have a lot of friends and former colleagues there. Seeing everything that happened last week, I can only imagine. I'm interviewing a reporter who was under the dome later today. And so people should stay tuned to WKXL to, to hear that interview. And she was telling me off the air, look, she was a reporter in Baltimore for 10 years. And she said she had never heard the sound of a gunshot before last Wednesday. I understand that this is extremely emotional, but if Joe Biden is going to be the president of the United States and is going to have to lead the country and his party, and he truly believes that this impeachment effort is stepping on his ability to set us on the right course, then he should weigh in. Again, I personally feel that the best way to proceed here is to have a 9-11 style commission to really look into this, have it be bipartisan, focus on the way forward. And I would prosecute the ever-living you-know-what out of everyone who 
not only was involved last week, but who was even contemplating any kind of violence going forward in these demonstrations at state capitals that are supposed to occur. I would bring the hammer down on those types of folks. You can, you can, be, you can be really harsh with them all the live long day, but as a political matter, yes, I would, I would chart a more restrained course. I think that's better for Democrats. I think it's better for the country. Representing the well, feel good, representing the feel good party, um, Sherrod Brown, Senator Sherrod Brown was on uh, television last night speaking as only Sherrod Brown does with gravel in his voice. And uh, uh, he said, you know, uh, the U.S. Senate's capable of doing more than one thing at, one, at once. We can do three things at once. We can uh, impeach the guy. We can uh, hold hearings. We can uh, move the thing forward. So, you know, there's an argument in the U.S. Senate that we're actually capable of working rather than spending two and a half hours a week uh, as uh, they currently are uh, not working, but actually getting things done. So it is quite possible to deal with impeachment, to deal with the agenda, to deal with appointments uh, all at the same time. It's, it's more than just feel good. I agree, I agree with Matt that uh, there should be criminal prosecutions. Um, I agree with Matt. There should be a 9-11 commission. I don't think either of those is, uh, I, I don't think that and moving forward to hold him, this president accountable by impeachment uh, are mutually exclusive. And uh, what just came across my wire as we're talking is that the articles of impeachment are moving forward. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to it. And I think Joe Biden's job has been made more difficult. Uh, over the given the events of the past week, he's uh, he's facing an even tougher road uh, than 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 before because he's got to not only speak to all Americans uh, and speak for his party, uh, but deal with this uh, thorny question, the the questions we're debating now about what's the proper way to see justice done and move forward. He's been pretty careful about. Uh, saying that uh, he will leave to his Justice Department to de make determinations about criminal prosecutions, unlike the current president, who considered who and 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 attorney the attorney former Attorney General Barr, who treated the relationship as one of private lawyer and client. Um, Biden will leave the Justice Department uh, as an independent Justice Department, and they'll make their own decisions. So I say, do it all. The other big story uh, over the last few days, social media. Twitter has permanently uh, banned President Trump and 70,000 QAnon supporting uh, accounts. Uh, Amazon hosting services removed Parler, the alternative messaging app that people had been migrating to. Facebook has uh, shut down political advertising and Josh Hawley, the leader of the Senate group that voted not to accept the results of the election, had his book uh, canceled uh, by his publisher. Are, are these steps a good idea to fight violence and misinformation or a bad idea that violates the First Amendment, Alicia? Well, I think there's a whole lot of gray area to be figured out by people with a whole lot of degrees that I don't have. Um, when it comes to antitrust and monopolies and all that kind of stuff. My initial response when Twitter shut down and Facebook shut down Donald Trump in light of 
a comment was, and I got excoriated on social media for noting this, that we Republicans believe in the free market and it's not communist to shut that down. What would be communist is to require a publisher to print government speech. That is communist. Um, and, and I stand by that. Well, now we've, we've gotten into some other territory. We've gotten into web servers refusing to host certain websites that I'm not even sure there's anything wrong with them beyond being conservative. We've gotten into Ron Paul being removed from Facebook. We've gotten into, and I don't know how this works, but on Twitter, apparently people are losing tens and thousands of followers, like the people that have lots of followers. And now we're getting into, okay, this sounds like an antitrust monopoly situation. I don't know if it's free speech because of course free speech means the government can't penalize you or stop your speech. It doesn't necessarily mean a private business can't and Twitter is indeed a private business. So we've gotta be careful with those arguments because we believe in free market. We do believe in free speech. And we believe in the right of a private business to do what it wants. I used the example the other day. I'm the person, the only one in the state of New Hampshire or the country possibly, that still says a restaurant should allow smoking in there if they want because it's a private business and you can choose to attend, right? That's what I believe. That is a foundation of my belief system. But now we're getting a little big in this movement. So I'm not sure. Paul, are you sure? Uh, you know... I usually am sure about things. I think there are a lot of thorny issues here. And and just to pile on just a little bit, we've also now seen uh, in the campaign finance arena that major corporations and associations are pulling and or threatening to pull their financial support from uh, representatives who uh, stood with the anti-certification um, pro-incitement uh, group. So you've got a whole host of private actors now um, uh, affecting what is going on uh, politically. Um, the First Amendment applies to the government. You shall make no, no law abridging the right of free speech. And as Alicia said, we've got um, private, private corporation actors acting. The the um, it may very well be that our current jurisprudence is not quite up to speed yet about the relationship and impact of giant social media conglomerates who are the um, have become the soapbox. They have become the public square. Um, Twitter and Facebook are in effect, uh, just uh, as to, to name two. They are the public square. They are the soapbox. And so if the soapbox is removed and the public square is closed, um, does, does that impact um, a, a, a notion of First Amendment or does the First Amendment need to be re-examined in light of uh, the social media uh, control over the national dialogue. It's a very thorny question that needs to be examined uh, without regard to the partisan, uh, to a partisan politics about it, because its implications for our society at large and the way we govern and the way we communicate are, are, are enormous. And it is an example of the tools we have created outstripping uh, the laws and jurisprudence 
uh, and norms that we have lived with up, up till now. And great crises like this um, sometimes make for hard, it's said in the law, hard cases make bad law. So uh, it, it, this is a very deep, very thorny issue. Matt, weigh in. Well, I see I've got about a minute here. Um, I agree with both the points that my co-panelists made here. I think that there is no absolute right to uh, inciting violence online. I think we've seen in the instances of Rwanda, of Myanmar with the, with the Rohingya population, that genocide can result from incitement through media to violence. There is no absolute right to that. It's further complicated, as Paul was pointing out, by the fact that 50% of traffic on Twitter comes from bots. Those bots are controlled by foreign entities like Russia. And so there is, there is a highly distortionary effect on our politics and on speech that's happening that we don't have a handle on. So the only thing I would say to Alicia's earlier point, which I agree with, is... I am fine with deplatforming all of these folks. I'm fine with private companies taking private actions with their private resources. I agree with Paul, though, that we should probably look at this and do it in context. Let's not do it selectively uh, for these instances. Let's let's take a broader approach. And that, unfortunately, is going to have to uh, wrap it up for this edition of Politics Roundtable. For Paul Hose, Matt Robeson, and Alicia Preston, I'm Ken Kale. Join us next time for another edition of Politics Roundtable.